please be seated. Turn with me to Numbers 25. Numbers 25. Steve always moves this mic. And then most of the time he doesn't move it back when I come up to do the benediction. And I'm always like, come on, move the mic back. Guaranteed, I'll forget today. 100% chance. Numbers 25. We're continuing in our... Study through the book of Numbers, our, our sermon series, Life in the Wilderness. We're going to read the entire chapter. This is the word of the Lord. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor. And in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come to you this morning, we ask that as we open your word and as we hear it preached, that you would be at work in our hearts. Give me words to say that that reflect the truth of your word and, and give us all ears to hear that your spirit might be at work in, among us applying it to our hearts and and helping us to see more of who you are, more of who we are and how we're to live in in relationship to you and then in relationship to others around us. We pray that you would uh, be with us by your spirit. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, there are lots of things in life that we take seriously, especially dangerous things. Now, this isn't really a problem in Indiana, But growing up in California, we had black widows, poisonous spiders. 
And they were relatively common. Not like wake up in the middle of your night, the night with like a black widow on your face common. Not like, you know, get up and turn all the lights on and make sure that there's not a black widow in the room. Um, it seems like you read about accounts in like Australia where people wake up with snakes like in their bed. Uh, that's not how black widows were. They liked cool, dark crevices. But because they were still pretty common in like garages in like wood piles, like if you went out to the wood pile to get some wood to put on the fire and you didn't put on gloves, that was really foolish. Like you, you just need to do it. Um, because black widows were kind of common. We came across them. I remember one Christmas, we had a Christmas tree that we had gotten up in the foothills and we brought it home, put it up, put all the ornaments on it, all the lights. And the next morning, we come out and we look and we can see from like the tip of the tree to the ceiling that there's a cobweb. Now, usually, you know, you just go and you swipe a cobweb and it just kind of falls off. Well, this cobweb, it didn't. You, like, hit it and it almost, like, twang. It's like, okay, that's, that's, a, that's a black widow's cobweb. You know, you know their cobwebs. They're very strong. So my dad took the tree and we took everything off of it. He took it out, shook it outside, brought it back in. Next morning, another cobweb. Took it back outside, shook it off outside. And, you know, that night we're all like, there's a black widow in our house. What are we going to do? Um, thankfully, it was gone after that. Never saw it. Nobody got bit. Uh, had a friend who got bit by a black widow, though. So they were, they, were, they were spiders that you knew to watch out for. We were on alert for black widows. We took black widows seriously because they were dangerous. Well, in our passage this morning, Numbers 25, we're going to see something else that we should take seriously, sin. We're going to see that we need to take sin seriously. We need to be on high alert for sin. And we're going to see three reasons in our passage. Three reasons that we should take sin seriously. And the first reason is that sin is deceiving. And we actually see that at the end of our passage. So we're going to look back at verses 16 to 18 and listen for how the Israelites were deceived by sin. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor, and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. Now you may be wondering, how did Israel end up in this mess in Numbers 25? I mean, we just saw in Numbers 22 to 24 that there was nothing that Balaam could do to the people of Israel to bring misfortune upon them. Balaam couldn't manipulate God. He couldn't twist God's arm and make God stop blessing the people of Israel. Balaam was powerless. I love that Steve called him this, this supposedly superstar sorcerer. And yet, he had no power over God. He had no power over God's people. That narrative, Numbers 22 to 24, it ended on such a good note. And then we see really quickly, Israel just falls off a cliff. Like, how did we go from, look how God is blessing the people of Israel, to look how the people are sinning against their God? How did that happen? Well, guess what? Balaam is at the center of it all. Now you're wondering, like, wait a sec, we just read Numbers 25, I I didn't see Balaam's name mentioned. How is Balaam at the center of it all? Well, Numbers 31 helps us to understand that. You see, in Numbers 31, God has Israel carry out what he told them to do in Numbers 25. In Numbers 25, he had said, harass the Midianites and strike them down. 
Then you read Numbers 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. They didn't do that yet. And it wasn't that they were disobeying. It was just that God actually wasn't ready for them to do it. Well, now he is. Numbers 31, God is ready for the Israelites to strike down the Midianites. Now, why is he having them do that? Well, because Israel had been lured into sin by both the Midianites and the Moabites. These nations had come up with this plan. After the whole Balaam debacle... The Midianites and the Moabites realized, we can't defeat Israel by twisting the arm of Israel's God. He's too powerful. He's not fickle like our gods. He can't, we can't manipulate him. He's too faithful to himself. We need a, a new plan. Plan A isn't going to work, so we need plan B. And so they schemed. And plan B was decided on. Let's send our women to seduce their men. And that plan worked. Numbers 25 starts off by saying that the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. The plan is a success. Israel face plants because of the deceptiveness of sin. God said in verse 18, They have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you. So plan A involved manipulating God. Total failure. Plan B involved manipulating Israel. Total success. Plan A failed Because God is perfect. He's unchanging. He's unable to be harassed by the wiles of man. He is unable to be beguiled. Plan B succeeded. Because we are imperfect. We are fickle. We are absolutely capable of being harassed by the wiles of man. We are absolutely capable of being beguiled. Read Proverbs 7 sometime. If you want a heart-level commentary of what was happening Under the surface of Numbers 25, read Proverbs 7. Men and women like you and me, we can be persuaded. We can be convinced. We can can be manipulated. God can't. We can. That is why plan B works. Can't get God to bring misfortune upon his own people? We'll just have the people bring misfortune upon themselves. It's an evil, devious, conniving plan, but it absolutely works. And guess who came up with that plan? That sly dog, Balaam. Balaam is at the center of it all. And Numbers 31 tells us that. In Numbers 31, Moses is upset. The people of Israel had let all of the women live in Midian. And yet they were supposed to only let the virgins live. Now that sounds harsh. Why are they going to kill all of the women? Well, don't forget... The women of Midian had seduced the men of Israel. And just as Israel had been punished for their part in the matter, so too was Midian going to be punished for theirs. And so Moses is upset. The leaders of Israel have given the women a pass. They've spared the women. And because of this, beginning in verse 15, Moses lays into the leaders of Israel. And listen to who he places at the center of the Midianites' schemes. Verse 15, chapter 31. Have you let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So the women of Midian, along with the women of Moab, successfully seduced the men of Israel. And it was on Balaam's advice. He made the perfect strategic changes. It was like he went into the locker room at halftime, made all the necessary adjustments, and came out and just decimated Team Israel. Look, I can't curse Israel. 
I can't get their God to bring misfortune upon them. He is determined to bless them, and so he will. But maybe, maybe there's another way to cripple them. Let's seduce them. Let's make the men fall hard for your women, and then let's get them to worship your gods. That will cripple them. And it did. Israel was hurt not by Balaam's attempts to curse them, but by their own sinful actions. They were deceived and they fell hard. Now, deception. It's the oldest trick in the book for Satan and his demonic forces. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Why does he do that? Because it works. Satan is the ultimate pragmatist. If it works, let's do it. Deception, manipulation, persuasion, they can trip us up. We get caught off guard. We may not be seeking out sin, but we also sometimes are not prepared for it. There's all kinds of things in life that we prepare for without seeking it out. I remember as a kid doing tons of fire drills in elementary school and thinking, why do we have to do this? There's not a fire. Well, when you get to college, somebody will let light something on fire, so you need to know how fire drills work. <laughs> no, we did fire drills, but there was never a fire, but we were prepared for it. We carried jumper cables in our car. We do that because our battery could die. We wear seatbelts in case somebody else crashes into us. We listen intently, hanging on to every single word of the flight attendant's spiel. Okay, maybe we don't do a great job of that, but we should, right? Because if something goes wrong on the plane, we should know what we need to do in case something malfunctions. All of these things. We don't seek out those problems, but we prepare for them. How much more so sin? especially considering how prone we are to commit it. The chances of you and me sinning today are sadly way higher than a school fire or a dead car battery or a car accident or a plane malfunction. How much more so should we be prepared to fight against sin? And yet, if if you're anything like me, we don't know the word well enough. We don't draw near to the throne of grace often enough. And Satan comes in and he deceives us. He catches us with our defenses down, just like he caught Eve. Eve's defenses were down, and he convinced her to not trust God. He offered an alternative option, and he made it sound way better than God's way. He made it sound so good that she couldn't pass up on it. And what she had thought would promise life, that really produced death. She was deceived. And we can be deceived as well. And it doesn't have to be in the big things. It doesn't have to be embezzling thousands of dollars from the business you work for, or cheating on your spouse, or plotting to murder somebody, or anything else that might be considered especially heinous. It could be those things. We can be deceived to that end, but we can also be deceived in the everyday moments of life. Sin can be pretty easily justified. It's okay if I cut out of the office a little early today. Nobody's going to mind. College students, listen up. It's not a big deal if I add a bunch of fluff to my research paper to make it meet the four-page minimum. Like, it's all right. Nobody will notice. I'll make my period a little bit bigger with a different font size. I may be a college student, but I also have taught college classes. It's fine if 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 I throw on another TV show for the kids 
because I, I stayed up way too late and I'm just too tired to really want to invest in them. And so I'll just throw in another show, especially when your wife is gone and it's just you. Man, sin is deceptive. Satan can be deceiving, and, and we can be just as good at convincing ourselves. Not, not only does Satan seek to deceive us, but, man, it just it bubbles up. I can come up with all kinds of reasons to excuse sinful thoughts and desires and actions. I can persuade myself that it's not a big deal if I talk about that person behind their back. I'm, I'm just talking to my wife. I can persuade myself that, that the person that I'm angry with, they totally deserve it. Like, it's okay for me to be angry with them. Sin is deceiving. And so that's the first reason that we need to take sin seriously. It's deceiving. The Israelites, they were deceived, and we are capable of being deceived as well. So here's the second reason that we need to take sin seriously. It's enslaving. Sin is enslaving. Now look again back at verses 1 to 3. Numbers 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. See, God doesn't pull any punches in describing sin in this passage. He could have said it far more neutrally, He could have said something like, Israel entered into relationships with foreign women who introduced them to idol worship. But but that's that's too watered down. That leaves room for us to think, you know what, maybe it wasn't a big deal. Maybe maybe it was kind of okay, like maybe God's kind of okay with that. But it was a big deal to God. And that's why he says the people whored with the daughters of Moab. They bowed down to their gods and they yoked themselves to Baal. This is, this is covenant unfaithfulness. In another way, it's, it's marital unfaithfulness. They did exactly what God had warned them not to do back in Exodus. Exodus 23.32, you, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. And yet here in Numbers 25, that's exactly what they did. They broke their marriage vows to God. It's like they slept with the gods of another nation. They were unfaithful to the Lord, and they reveled in their sin. The text says that they ate and bowed down to the gods of Moab. That's just like another way of saying they partied. It's unbridled pleasure. It's like Exodus 32 with the golden calf. What what does Aaron say after he's he's fashioned this calf? He says in verse 5, "...tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord." And when he says Lord, he's talking about this calf that he's made. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is the ancient Near Eastern way of saying the people partied hard. They feasted and they celebrated their idolatry. They did it in Exodus 32 and they do it again in Numbers 25. But then verse 3 shows us what's really happening. Israel may have found their sin pleasurable. They may have enjoyed it at first, but really it was enslaving them. Verse 3, so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Israel had joined themselves to the gods of these foreign nations. Like oxen that are are hitched up to a plow or, or to a wagon. 
I'm no farmer, so I probably botched that. But you know what I'm getting at. They, they had joined themselves to these nations. They didn't just dabble in idol worship. It wasn't like they dipped their toes in the water of sin and then ran away. They yoked themselves. They joined themselves. They were tangled up in their sin. It enslaved them. They were captured. There was literally no escape. Now check this out. Listen to what Jesus says in the New Testament. He talks about his teaching like a yoke. But he talks about his yoke in way different terms. Matthew eleven twenty nine to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of sin crushes us. The yoke of sin burdens us down. It keeps us coming back to our folly, just as the Proverbs say, like a dog returning to its vomit. If you ever really examine yourself, if you like really think about why you do what you do, the, you realize that the yoke of sin will only bring despair. Apart from the transformational work of God, bringing us from death to life in Christ, we will only ever know the taste of folly over and over and over again. Sin entangles us, it enslaves us, and it leads to death. But the yoke of Jesus is far different. We are enslaved to a far better master, one who is gentle and lowly in heart, one who gives rest to our souls. He sets us free from sin. He sets us free from this merry-go-round of sin. And he makes us slaves of righteousness, slaves to God. And the fruit of that is real, lasting change and growth, which finally ends in eternal life. That's the sure hope that is offered to us in the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of his people. Sin produces death. Sin enslaves us. Sin brings us back over and over again to our folly. We make the same dumb decisions over and over again with the fleeting, temporary satisfaction that they bring. If you're still believing the lie that sin will satisfy, turn to Jesus Christ today. He is a far better master than sin will ever be. The yoke of sin will be your destruction, but the yoke of Jesus will give you life. And Jesus says, all who come to me, I will receive. So come to Jesus. Trust in him. Find life in him. So that's the second reason to take sin seriously. Sin is enslaving. Now here's the third reason. Sin warrants God's wrath. We're going to read again. I know we read it once, but it was a while ago. So we're going to read again verses 3 to 13. And listen to see that sin warrants God's wrath. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family 
in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, He was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. There's a whole lot to unpack in this passage. It raises a lot of questions. But they probably all boil down in some way, shape, or form to this overarching question. Why did God deal so harshly with the people of Israel and the people of Midian? God often gets painted by critics of the Bible as being cruel, and brutal, and vindictive, and villainous in how he deals with mankind, especially in the Old Testament. It's a common complaint that God is a moral monster because he does things like we've seen in Numbers. He sends a plague on his people. He opens the earth and swallows people. He commands Israel to wipe out entire nations. For lots of people, this is just wrong. They're asking questions like, how could God do such a thing? Well, this passage helps address that question. And the super basic simplified answer is sin warrants God's wrath. We deserve to be punished for our sins. We see that in this passage with the Israelites. The Israelite man is killed with the spear by Phinehas. God sent a plague that killed 24,000 of the people. And then we see also God's wrath, the punishment for sin with the Midianites. The Midianite woman is also killed with the spear of Phinehas. And later God commands the Israelites to strike down the Midianites. Sin warrants God's wrath. And the sin is twofold in this passage. First, we see the sexual sin. Israelite men were sleeping with Moabite and Midianite women outside of the bonds of marriage. And second, very much connected to the first, they go hand in hand. The people of Israel were then worshiping the gods of these nations. They were entering into relationship with these nations, and they followed these nations right into their idol worship. If you read about God's desire for the people of Israel, it was that they would be attractive to the nations. That the nations would look on them and wonder and say what what God they serve, what good commandments they have. The nations would say they're different, they're they're unique, and there's an attractiveness to that. But we see it flipped. Instead, the people of Israel, they're attracted to the nations. They're drawn to the nations. That's why God is so concerned in the Old Testament, with Israel being separate from the surrounding nations. And that's why God gives all kinds of commandments about Israel wiping out the inhabitants of the promised land. If they got chummy with the Amorites and the Hittites and the Hivites and all those other ites, they were opening themselves up to embracing idolatry. God doesn't command Israel to wipe out the inhabitants of the promised land because of some racial motivation. He commands it not because of their ethnic background or their skin color or any other external reason. God commands Israel to wipe out these foreign nations because of their sin, 
because of their idolatry, because of their rejection of God, because they refuse to worship Him and submit to Him. If you read Scripture, God warmly welcomes the foreigner into His family. And we should all be rejoicing at this moment as Gentiles. He makes all kinds of provisions throughout the Old Testament for those who were not native-born Israelites. We've already seen that in Numbers. I counted five different passages that address the foreigner or the stranger or the sojourner among God's people in just the book of Numbers alone. And it's not like God said this. Here's how I'm going to treat the Israelites. And then here's another set of rules and laws and commandments for the sojourner or the stranger. Like, here's one set for Israel, because I'm like, obviously, like, they're different. But, so I'm going to have one set for them, and then one set for the sojourner who also wants to worship me and submit to me. That's not how God operates. In all five passages, Numbers 9, Numbers 19, 35, and then twice in chapter 5, in all five places, God says in one way or another, here's the rule. Here's the law. Here's what I expect. And it's the same for the native-born and for the sojourner. It's the same for the Israelite and for the foreigner. What matters to God is whether or not one trusts in him and obeys him and submits to him. Israelite and foreigner alike. The foreign-born who puts their trust in God will be welcomed into God's family. Read about Rahab in Joshua 2. Read about Ruth in the whole book of Ruth. Read about Othniel in Judges 3. That's a fun one. Read about Othniel, Judges 3. Foreigners were welcomed into God's family, even given leadership roles in God's family. So God is not angered here in Numbers 25 because Israel is being too friendly with foreigners simply because they weren't Israelites. God is angered because Israel indulged in idol worship mixed with sex outside of marriage. He's angry because the Moabite and the Midianite women provoke the Israelite men to worship their gods. God is angered because Israel broke the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This all goes back to what we've already seen in this passage. Israel yoked themselves to the gods of foreign nations. They were unfaithful. They were impure in their relationships to one another. And they were unfaithful and impure in their relationship to God. And there was a steep price to be paid. The Israelites, they suffered yet another plague. The Midianites, they suffered total defeat and destruction. Sin warrants God's wrath. It's on full display in Numbers 25. Which is a sobering reminder to us that our sin too warrants God's wrath. We deserve to be punished just like Israel was and just like the Midianites were. So we need a solution. We've been given three reasons to take sin seriously. It's deceiving, it's enslaving, and it warrants God's wrath. Therefore, we need a solution to our problem of sin. And that means sin must be atoned for. Something must be done to make things right, to make amends for the wrong that was done, and to turn away God's wrath. We see that happen here in our passage in Numbers 25. The sin of the people is atoned for through the actions of Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron. He steps up and he does something about the sin that's been committed. He doesn't sit back. He doesn't idly condone the sinful behavior. No, it says, as God himself said, he was jealous with my jealousy. That's a really important statement. Phineas cared about what God cared about. 
Phineas didn't redefine right and wrong. He didn't do what he thought was right in his own eyes. He didn't say, I'd rather not do things God's way. I'd rather forge my own path. No, Phineas submitted himself to God. He cared about what God cared about. He didn't justify sin. He didn't excuse sin. He hated sin as God hates sin. And in this particular passage, he obeyed what God had commanded to be done. He did what God had told him to do. Kill those who have sinned against the Lord. And because he obeyed God and was jealous as God was jealous, the sins of the people were atoned for and the plague stops. Something had to be done about the people's sin. Zimri, this man who brought the Midianite woman into the camp, he's an example of the brazenness of the people of Israel. Just how blatantly they were flaunting their sin, rebelling against God. It was running rampant in the camp, so much so that he's just wandering through the camp, taking this woman with him. And Phineas is an example of one who obeyed God and did what he had been told to do. Now, this is a very specific example in redemptive history. We shouldn't all be walking around with our spears ready to impale somebody in the hallway as we see them sin. That's not what we're getting at here. This is not God's normal way of dealing with sin. This isn't normative for us. It's not a pattern for us to follow. But, but even as we see in this very specific example, we do recognize two important truths. Sin warrants God's wrath, and something must be done to atone for sin. We can easily relate to that. That's an issue that we too, like the Israelites, need resolved. And this points us to Jesus Christ. Through his death on the cross, the sins of God's people were atoned for. We who have trusted in Christ, we are no longer at odds with God. We are no longer enemies with God. His wrath is no longer directed at us because it was all directed at his son, whom he dearly loves. Jesus died the death that we deserved. Jesus took the spear that we deserved. He was pierced as we should have been pierced. He took the punishment that we should have taken. He paid the price that we should have paid. Jesus atoned for our sins. And that is both a comforting truth and it's also a motivating truth. Because his spirit is now at work in us who have trusted in him. Enabling us to fight against sin in our lives. The power of sin to deceive us, the power of sin to enslave us, it's broken because of Jesus. We've been given new life. And now, like Phineas, we can agree with God. We can love the things that God loves. We can hate the sin that God hates. If you're in Christ, God is working in you to make you more and more like his son. You are growing in grace. Sin does not have the power that it once had over you. Fight the deceptive lies of sin with the truth of God's word. Live as one yoked, not to sin, but to Christ. Become more and more of what God has declared you to be in Christ. Remembering that his wrath is no longer upon you because it was all poured out upon his son. So take sin seriously. Rejoice because your sin has been atoned for. Now, we could, we could end the sermon here. Or not. We're going to keep going because if I've learned anything from Steve, keep talking. I kid, but we are going to keep going for just a moment. Because this passage has presented us with some hard truth. It doesn't water down the truth about our sin, or about God's wrath, 
or his justice or his holiness. It shoots us straight. This passage tells it like it is in brutally honest terms. So it's not surprising if you had questions at the beginning of this passage. You may not have any more questions now, but it's not surprising if you had some questions. No, you may still have questions. So I want to close out this sermon by saying this. We will never be satisfied with any answers to any questions we may have, no matter how logical those answers may be, no matter how reasonable they may be, no matter how persuasive they may be. We will never be satisfied unless we submit to God. We can have questions. You can desire understanding. You could read this passage and scratch your head. That is not wrong. We can have questions. But unless you approach God in his word with a posture of humility and a recognition that God is the final authority on all things, you'll never be satisfied. If we approach the text with demands of God, if we approach the text saying, you have to satisfy my desires, if we approach the text scoffing at God, thinking we know better than God, trust me, you'll never be satisfied. And even more importantly, if that's how we come at the text, we need to repent. I need to repent of all the times that I have said, how dare you, God? Because we need to constantly be approaching God, not on our terms, but on his terms. Not the other way around. And, if you're sitting here thinking, man, that sounds harsh. Actually, that's a really good thing. Because going our own way will destroy us. But obeying God and submitting to him will give us life. Psalm 16 finishes with these words. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, God dictates the terms of our relationship for both his glory and our good. And the more that we define good and evil as God has defined it, not as sinful man has, the more that we will have peace and joy and contentment. So let's submit ourselves to God and his word. And let's rejoice in the good news of the gospel. Jesus has atoned for our sins. Just like Phineas, he turned away God's wrath. He is the one who has reconciled us to God, in whose presence we find fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are reminded of how much we need you of how utterly dependent we are upon you. We see what our fate would be apart from you. We would die in our sin. Lord, I pray even this morning, as we've looked at Numbers 25 and and, and had hard questions maybe come up in in our minds and in our hearts, I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of your sovereignty, of your love for us, and of your great wisdom. Even as we read in Romans 11 this morning, God, you are inscrutable. There are ways in which we can't fully understand you. And yet, Lord, we want to, like Paul, as he finished Romans 11, we want to to have the same response. We want to praise you. Help us, Lord, to praise you. Help us to trust you. Help us to see the, the, the great dire situation that we would be in without Christ. And to turn to you and to praise you for the hope of salvation, the sure hope of salvation that we have in him.
So, Lord, I pray this week that we would flee sin, that we would fight against sin, that we would see the ways in which sin is, is, is crouching at the doorstep. And yet, Lord, even more so, I pray that we would see more and more of the beauty and the majesty of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to flee to him. Help us to find refuge in him. And help us to, to even now sing praises because of what he has done upon the cross for our sins. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please stand and join us in singing. possible to get good help around here. All right. What a good sermon. Whew, praise God. Jesus has dealt with our sin. Our sin is a 
makes a mess of everything, and Jesus' mercy is bigger and stronger. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You are dismissed.